Hello, you're listening to the Behaviour Change Marketing Bootcamp podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Dale. And in today's episode, we focus in on social proof, how to use it, what it is, when to use it with some great case studies. And we also talk about earthquakes, tornadoes, the TV programme, The Bear, and even a bit of Gordon Ramsay. That's because I'm joined by Jen Kleinhands. Jen is the author of Choice Hacking, and she also runs the podcast Choice Hacking. And you can follow her on TikTok under Choice Hacking. She is an incredible marketer, and we were so delighted to have her join us. You will be inspired. There is loads to learn in this one, and all the tips are really applicable. So get your pen and paper out. Let's dive in. Just before we get started, quick heads up, the final Behaviour Change Marketing Bootcamp for 2023 is on the 13th of December. As always, limited spots. So head over to www.behaviourchange.marketing to grab your spot. Hello, today we're welcoming into the studio Jen Kleinhands. Jen is the author of Choice Hacking. She runs an incredible podcast called Choice Hacking, a newsletter called Choice Hacking. And we've had her on the podcast before because she's absolutely an expert in the field of behavioral science and marketing. So we're so happy to welcome her back. Hello, Jen. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's our pleasure. And the reason we reached out to Jen is because she did this most incredible episode on social proof. And this comes up a lot in our training and also, of course, in all of our work. And in this episode, I'm not going to go into it now. I'm going to let Jen explain it. But it's absolutely everyone worth listening to because Jen just explains social proof in context of social norms, but how we can use them in marketing in something like 10 minutes. And it's just such a standout episode that... Even though it's a couple of years old, I still remember it. So I asked Jen to come on to talk about the social proof itself, because to be honest, she's the best. So I'm going to hand over to Jen and say, Jen, please, can you start by sort of telling us a little bit about what inspired you about that episode and just explain what social proof is? Sure. So I mean, that episode is, I think, one of my favorites for two reasons. One, it's an excuse to use a clip from Mean Girls to talk about social norms, yeah. which uh, is an awesome movie. If, if people listening have not seen it, you should watch Mean Girls. But if you don't know about Mean Girls, it's basically it was based on a, a book, actually a nonfiction book about sort of social structures for girls in high schools. So what is a social norm for you know girls in high school? And there's a famous clip from you know Mean Girls where they say things like you know on Wednesdays we wear pink, right? So yes. these things that they do as a group to signal that they are a group together, to signal who's outside of their group, who's in the group. So I thought, you know, it was really fascinating. And actually the original book, I think it's called Queen Bees and Wannabes is the book that it's based on, broke down all these sort of different approaches to social norms in that high school structure. And then the movie, you know, obviously is like a comedic movie, but I think it did bring through a lot of those interesting sort of, I guess you could call them like anthropological studies of, you know, the American high school, you know, female experience. And I just thought that was so interesting from the perspective of behavioral science and marketing, because, you know, if you think about social norms, like what is normal, you know, quote unquote, what is, you know, outside of the norm. And if you want to be in an in group, you know, what are kind of the things that you need to pick up? And, you know, the same thing sort of applies to brands as well. So you think about, I mean, obviously an overused example, but Apple. So Apple is a brand that I think is really great. Maybe less so now, but, you know, in the Steve Jobs heyday into the last like 10 years, they've been really great about 
sort of signaling what it means to be an Apple consumer, right? You're more creative. You might be a creative professional. You're somebody who cares about design. You're somebody who probably makes a little bit more money than average. And what are sort of the social norms of being an Apple consumer, as well as thinking about a product like the iPhone, which benefited quite a bit from social proof. In fact, I'll back up even more. So the iPod really benefited from social proof. So this is a million years ago. I'm old enough to remember. Some listeners may not be. But when the iPod came out, it was a huge deal because like the Zune existed and there was some like digital, you know, media products. But the interesting thing about the iPod, of course, was the design. And it came with white earbuds. You know, they go in your ear. They're attached with a white cable. But that was really unique for that time. Everybody else had the black Head, you know, headphones that go over, they're kind of like wired. Yeah. I mean, you would get these just terrible headphones with like the Sony Walkman or whatever. And what happened was one or two people would buy an iPod, they get on the subway or they go to a college campus and people would be like, oh, wow, those headphones are really cool. Oh, that person must have an iPod. And then pretty soon they're like, oh, well, I want to, you know, that's signaling that this person is like, you know, a little affluent, a little, you know, innovative, a little creative. I want to be like that person. So pretty soon you would look up on, you know, like the T in Boston where I was or, you know, college campus or whatever. And everybody would have these white earbuds that you could only get with an iPod at that time. Obviously now, you know, a million different companies have ripped that off. But at the time, it was really like a, a signal of something. And before you knew it, you were the one who was like in the outside group. Whereas before you were, you know, <laughs> you and everybody else was basically like, ooh, I wish I could be in that special Apple club. But then that started to function as a, a form of social proof in that most people had those white earbuds. So I, you can see how it works in a number of different ways, because I think when most people think about social proof, they think about these, you know, messages like maybe, you know, McDonald's is a good example. So for years and years, they would count how many burgers they had sold and put it up on the sign. Yeah. And say, you know, 50 million sold, a billion sold, five billion. And now it just says billions and billions because they stopped counting us. We would be terrified if we knew how many McDonald's burgers people had eaten <laughs> if we counted. But if you think about the beginnings of McDonald's as a brand, you know, it's one of the first like major successful franchises you know, it started, I believe, in California, and then eventually they moved the headquarters to Chicago. The first one was in California, I think. And, um, you know, they started to do sort of that franchising thing. And if a McDonald's rolled into town, maybe you had heard of it, but, you know, it wasn't really around in like mass media. Mm. But you would look at it and go like, oh, it says they've sold a million burgers. Well, I don't know anything about burgers, but I know million is a lot. And I know if a million people ordered something, it can't be bad. Yeah. So why don't I, you know, go into this McDonald's and try it? And then, you know, eventually you would have things like lines outside the restaurant for a functioning as a form of social proof. Oh, well, you know, there's a lot of people waiting to go into this McDonald's. It must be good. So social proof can work, I think, in a lot of different ways. And it's a really interesting one to explore when it comes to things like getting people to adopt behaviors or, I mean, to a certain extent, beliefs as well with things like social norming. I think, like you say, so kind of a popular probably something that everyone listening is aware of is a bit of an extension onto the McDonald's, but newsletters, you know, you'll often see, oh, join 18,000 other people who sign up to these newsletters. And it's used very commonly by people because it works, because mm -hmm. it's signaling that people like you who do your job read this because it's helpful. Mm -hmm. So I love that extension into actual other uses of social proof, because I think 
it's really underused. And I think um, mm. like you just teased out brilliantly about the difference between social norm and the social proof and the signaling. So to think about actually how am I signaling to my audience that everyone mm. else is doing this? Mm. And then that's kind of widens it out for you a lot more, doesn't it? Yeah. And moves it beyond just kind of, it's not clumsy messaging because it's brilliant, you know, celebrating, you know, that so many people are doing the one thing you're hoping, you know, and reading mm-hmm. a weekly newsletter. But actually, um, there are other cr- more creative approaches as well. Mm-hmm. And the one I loved in your episode was the canned laughter. So please, can you share with us how and why is canned laughter social proof? Yes. So I mean, again, maybe we can take a moment to explain canned laughter because, again, I feel old now, but I'm like, I'm trying to think, like, when is the last time we had a sitcom that was really popular that had canned laughter? But the idea is you have these people that they've recorded, the production company or, you know, the studio or whoever it might be, laughing at something, usually in a raucous kind of way, like, oh, my God, this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. You know, and it's a lot of people. It's, you know, men, women. It's like, you know, it just sounds like a crowd having a great time or great reaction to a joke. And with traditionally with the sitcom with sort of that three camera structure, right? So like Friends or, you know, I'll use an American example, Seinfeld. I know it's not as popular in the UK, but to me, it's very popular. (laughs) And they might have a live audience. In fact, they usually did, but they would also have canned laughter to supplement the live audience's reaction or sometimes substitute the audience's reaction. Because if you tell a joke that you've committed to that you can't change, you can't just let it kind of die, right? Yeah. You have to... Give a little bit of, hey, other people think this is funny and they think it's funny. So why don't you think it's funny? You should, you know, kind of laugh or, you know, laugh along with this canned laughter. And in fact, there's an example in the, in the podcast episode that I did where I'm going to forget who did it now off the top of my head. But somebody went through a bunch of these sitcoms and removed the canned laughter from jokes. And you hear it with the canned laughter at first and you're like, oh, that's really funny. You know, like, oh, yeah, that is funny. And then they take the canned laughter away and you're like, this isn't funny at all. Why? Why am I? I'm not going to laugh at this. This is awful, you know? Yeah. Um, And it's because, you know, studies have found actually that when studios use this canned laughter, people will laugh harder. They will laugh longer. And that's why it's because, you know, everyone around them is saying, oh, this is funny. And because you either want to, you know, join in or it's, you know, just something in our nature, the social side of our nature that makes us say like, oh yeah, well, they think it's funny. I must think it's funny too. And you sort of, you know, chuckle along. Yeah, I mean, I find that one to be really, really interesting because obviously it's something that developed as the sitcom kind of art form was developing as well. And it it can, it can help make, you know, a show much more popular than it would have been otherwise. And it can kind of help you know, the the reaction to these individual episodes or shows themselves. Yeah, because I think it's like you say, it's a very automatic response, you know, mm. to laugh along with it. And even though you might start laughing and even though you might think, I know this is canned laughter, you know, some mm-hmm. of it in Friends, for example, it does, it sounds fake, you know, it's not even pretending, yeah. but you still laugh. You still, there's something in you, even knowing that it's fake, you join mm-hmm. in and it feels yeah. better to join in. And I just think that's an incredible example of not, when you're in marketing, not overthinking the use of these tactics and thinking, oh, mm-hmm. you know, they're outdated or I can't use social proof too much. I think it's a really 
in our area anyway, really underused tactic. I think Mm. we overthink people's responses and we think people will be more rational or they won't like it. And actually it's a really basic, isn't it? Human psychological response Mm. to want to be part of the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And especially because, I mean, so I would consider myself an introvert, right? So I I have had a lot of fellow introverts say things like, well, not me because, you know, I'm, I'm different. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, everybody else, you know, they're, they're kind of like in their social groups and things I'm off doing, you know, things on my own, but actually research has found specifically Nielsen research fell into that social proof is by far the most trusted and effective form of, you know, advertising. So when you see somebody say like, hey, I really enjoy this product and it's somebody you know and trust, you're much more likely to act on that, which I think, you know, you see that on on places like TikTok. You know, if you have an influencer you follow, you've got a little bit of a parasocial relationship, you're like, oh, yes, of course I should do that. And I think it's it's worth saying as well that social proof is even more effective, the studies have shown, in like developing economies. So you you can rely even more on social proof if you are like outside of kind of Western, you know, like sort of the traditional like marketing economies that like, you know, I would work with because there's, you know, there's more sort of concerns around, you know, like, like what is marketing and is it manipulating me? And also just people, you know, tend to be closer, like in these, you know, familiar type relationships. And that's an interesting point, you know, for marketers to sort of log in their brain, but also it's, you know, people, people trust people that they know more than they trust people they don't know. It's not to say that like a celebrity endorsing something or saying, you know, 99% of Americans do this isn't really effective, but it's the most effective when you have kind of that personal connection. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I mean, social media wouldn't be as impactful if it is, if the social, that, you know, need for connection and finding people like you. And I think in the absence of the big, I hate to use a general overview, but often the Western world, people's sort of immediate family structures are very different. They haven't got the extended family support so much. People are more likely to have moved or, you know, moved and traveled or settled away from immediate support networks. And I do think people are looking outward a lot more than you potentially traditionally would have done when, you know, perhaps a lot of the family were living very local. Of course, some people still have those benefits, but I think in our culture, it is very common to travel. And so social proof becomes even more important, the more uncertain you are. So if you are Mm -hmm. making a decision, even at that very, very beginning stage, when you're just mulling it around in your head, what's the first thing you do? You ask someone Mm -hmm. you trust. And yeah. then in the absence well, of someone you trust, someone you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting because I was remembering when I, you know, I moved to Australia, which was very different. I mean, it's the first pl- time I had moved abroad from the U.S. And I moved to Sydney and I had like one connection and not in Sydney, but had, you know, moved to Sydney and was kind of giving me advice. You know, this is the best, like, you know, the phone service. This is the best neighborhood to live in. This is, and I was so discombobulated because I had zero connections there, no friends. No, you know, I was just kind of going into a new job. I just did everything they said. I didn't even question, <laughs> oh, maybe I should, you know, compare these mobile phone plans. I was like, no, forget it. Like this person says it's the right thing. There's so much else like kind of taxing on my brain at the minute. I'm going to lean hundred percent on this person that I know and, you know, mostly trust for, you know, brand recommendations and things. And just do what they say. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? 
Well, well that's that it. It takes away the thinking part, doesn't it? It's like, no, yeah. they've done the thinking. I'm just going to trust them now. And the more cognitively overloaded you are, obviously, the more likely you are. And that really extends into, for us, you know, a lot of us work in health and public health, really extends into if you're ill or we're having to work through quite complex information, you will lean towards the authorities. I say authorities, I, as in, you know, the expert to mm. give you the correct information as much as possible because it will kind of reduces the need. And then you'll look at the support groups. So I don't know, it feels like something that we in our space could potentially use so much more. And one thing you said in your episode was about, I know you look at a lot of customer mapping, but it's that there was something, a quote from someone saying the younger people are, the more likely they are to ask other people for recommendations. So the more likely they are to seek opinions. And I think, I don't know, when you do your mapping and when you're looking at using social proof or customer proof across a decision-making journey, should it be all spread out or should you be weighing up, you know, putting most of your messaging at that very beginning stage when people are thinking? Say, for example, sexual health, and we're always trying to reach young people, trying to get them to take chlamydia tests or, you know, mm -hmm. go and buy some condoms or whatever it is. And of course, mm -hmm. the younger they are, the more likely they are to ask for recommendations. And it feels like social proof should be, should it be weighted to the beginning or should it just be throughout the whole thing? Is there a good yeah. amount? I mean, it's a good question. Like, I, I think it always depends on the context. It depends on who we're talking to and all that. I mean, I think one thing to say about, you know, specifically public health is to be careful and to test social proof and social norming because it can have a tendency to backfire. So, you know, there was um, a study, I'm probably going to butcher the summary of it here, but in, essentially what you need to know is they were trying to reduce binge drinking on college campuses in the U.S. It's a huge problem. You know, you get these people out of the family home and they go and they go to a frat house and yeah. everybody is just, you know, doing keg stands. And is that true? I've seen that on the TV. It's in all the movies. Yes, Does that true. actually happen? And yes, it happens. We drink <laughs> out of the red solo cups, just like the movies. Do they? Um, but yeah, yeah. Beer pong, the whole thing. But, you know, there's this like attitude or, or social norm where binge drinking becomes normal. And so as a as a way to you know stop the binge drinking, they were putting up messages around, you know, like things like, you know, 85% of people or 85% of the students is on this or students on this college campus will binge drink at some point during their college career. Oh. And everybody would look at something like that and say, well, it's normal then. I'm doing exactly what everybody else is doing. And it wasn't until they flipped the sort of messaging to say, you know, something like along the lines of like 60% of students feel peer pressured to binge drink. And they wouldn't do it if their friends weren't egging them on. Then they started to see some behavior change. And I'm summarizing the, the study. I'll have to yeah. go find it with the specific numbers, but it's just sort of rules of thumb here. But it's the same with, you know, sustainability messages as well. You know, I, there's experiments where, you know, they'll put up signage in a supermarket to to see if they can get people to buy sustainable seafood over, you know, I guess, non-sustainable seafood. And they, if, you, if they have messages like 85%, did you know that 85% of the people that come into this grocery store don't buy sustainable seafood? Everyone will look at that and go, oh, great. I'm just like everybody else. And they'll <laughs> actually buy more seafood, but it won't necessarily be sustainable. So again, you know, test, especially social norming can kind of backfire because if you say a bad behavior is performed by the majority of people, you're going to get in trouble because you're going to get a bunch of people saying, oh, well, I just, I, I guess I'm normal then. 
Just like everybody else. And I promise that this is not planned. I just want anyone listening to know this because we've been obsessed with this, Jen. So everything Mm. you just said, because it's a real, it's like the biggest mistake we make and it's constant and it's everywhere in health. You know, we always say this amount of people don't turn up for their appointments. Oh, giving people a, you know, permission to not turn up for their appointment. You know, we are really, really guilty of this. Like you say, we we call it negative social proof in our world. But essentially, we are just reinforcing what we don't want people to do, giving them a permission or, you know, as you were saying, you know, giving them the cues to go and do something you don't want them to do. So I love that. That's absolutely fantastic. So when we use social proof, it's the same as, you know, making sure that we're actually leading to the behaviour we want them to do, which can be quite hard in public health because often not everyone is doing what you want. And there wouldn't be a public health problem if everyone was doing the desired behavior. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's interesting is you can look at it, you know, in different ways. So, you know, with something like smoking, you know, there were a lot of, you know, ads that ran in the U.S., these anti-smoking ads that actually the tobacco industry had to pay for as a part of the big settlements that they did, where it was more about the social consequences of smoking. So it it would be like, you know, an this is in the 90s, I think, or the early 2000s. So it's maybe not as politically correct today, but it would be like women saying things like, I would never make out with someone whose breath smells like smoke. You know, things like that where it's like, oh, well, all of a sudden there's social consequences for people that smoke. Or, you know, people would be out on a first date and somebody would be kind of hacking up a lung, you know, yeah. and the, the woman or the man would be like, ew, disgusting. Like, I don't want to be near you. But it's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, because I think sometimes with those social norming messages where we're talking about how they backfire, it's choices and behavior. And I guess to a certain extent, like morality can be very gray areas. And so we often will look to what are the majority of people doing to say, oh, that's that's fine. That's okay," You know, because, hey, everybody else does it because it's not always clear, you know, whether that's a, a quote unquote right thing or wrong thing or, you know, whatever it might be. So using, you know, the the right type of social proof in those gray areas can help sort of steer people in, I guess, quote unquote, better directions than trying to get people to make an independent decision about like, you know, skipping an NHS appointment. Like, is is that right or wrong? I think if you yeah. put people in front of, you know, on a stage and ask them, they would probably say, oh, that's very wrong. But if you get them alone in their head, they would probably say like, well, it's not really hurting anybody, is it? So, you know, I feel like I, I can't make it today. So I'll, I'll just skip it. It'll be OK. You know, they're, they're kind of left to their own devices to make a judgment yeah. about whether that's like good or bad. And so in those moments, I think those are great moments where, you know, social proof can kind of step in and say, you know, hey, you're about to make a bad decision. Here's, you know, why we think, you know, most people are making a different decision or more people should be making a different decision. Or it's actually, you know, normal to make the good decision, but you may not think that it is. So to your circling back to your point, I mean, I think when you do these customer journey maps and you're kind of looking at what people are thinking and the barriers that they're coming up against, you know, any point of indecision or sort of gray area where people are kind of saying, oh, should I, shouldn't I, uh, I don't know, introducing that social proof element or that social norming element to make them see, oh, well, yeah, most people think this is good or most people think this is bad can help sort of steer them in one direction or the other. You're not making the decision for them. Yeah. But you're definitely giving them the tools to say, okay, do I want to be in the group or out of the group? Do I want to go with what everybody else is doing or do I want to go a different direction? 
Oh my gosh. I'm sorry, I'm just writing all of this down as you speak. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. It's such a lovely way of explaining it as well. Look for the points of indecision rather than the timeliness. Well, I suppose, you know, not instead of by any means, if there's a clear, you know, points in your decision making journey, but also, yeah, just just queuing up to be part of the group, you know, not underestimating the power and the pull of the need to be part of the group. And almost and almost like take the decision making away, reducing the feeling of risk and uncertainty, isn't it? Giving people the confidence mm -hmm. to make that right decision. It's interesting, too, because, you know, I think sometimes you can pair different points of social proof to kind of make an interesting argument that's more convincing to people. So I'll give you an example. I worked with an app, a disaster preparedness app in the U.S. called Percy. And what we found through research was that I think it's 71 percent of Americans do not have a emergency preparedness plan. So you live in California, you know, there's going to be wildfires, but you're kind of like, eh, I'll figure it out when it happens. I'll figure it out when the fire is at my doorstep. You know what I mean? Oh. But in, in these emergency situations, over 90 percent of rescues are done by friends and family, people in the community, because first responders either can't get to you or, you know, first responders haven't gotten to your area yet. And so you have to, like, you know, kind of help everybody along. So that was an interesting, you know, experiment to kind of pair those two points together. More than 70 percent of you are not prepared, but more than 90 percent of you are going to have to rescue potentially friends, neighbors, yeah. family so doesn't it make sense to kind of shore up this gap with, you know, putting together a disaster preparedness plan? So, again, I, yeah. I think it's all about context and seeing how people react to different points of social proof. Because if you just told people 71 percent of Americans don't have a disaster preparedness plan, they'd be like, OK, great. Nobody else is doing this either. I mean, I talk to people who <laughs> who like. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing. It's not funny at all. But like just the thought of it is crazy. People who had lived through earthquakes, who had had their house burnt down, who who still did not have a plan, even though they had seen the consequences of not having a plan. So it's really interesting to kind of like look at, you know, what is actually persuasive to these people and what is not. And yeah, did you find out experience didn't make a difference? Did, you, did you find out, Jen, what was persuasive? What what was the blocker for them? Why didn't you'd think, because we don't have very extreme weather over here. So, not mm. you know, it sounds horrific, wildfires and things. Yeah. You'd think, but then like, I suppose people say, yeah, <laughs> what, did they get one in the end? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of folks like, you know, like I said, they would live through these disasters. It, it was just kind of this thought of it'll never happen to me. It, or yes. if they had lived through a disaster, well, it happened once. It'll never happen again. The chances are so small that it's a giant faff and I don't want to do it. And then coupled with, oh, I feel like, you know, the chances that like a tornado is going to hit my house are so small. It's a tornado is like this, you know, half a mile wide. <laughs> we get one like six times a year. It probably won't happen to me. But I think in these areas where it's more wow. it's more urgent to people. So like I, I lived in Texas and North Dakota. So Tornado Alley, if anybody's familiar. So you always, you know, in the summer, the spring, you would constantly, you know, be at school and we'd have to do tornado drills. We'd be at home and a tornado would hit, you know, 2 a.m. and the sirens would go off and we'd have to run down to the basement and stuff. And we always had a plan, I think, because it was just a part of our everyday lives. We saw it all the time. Whereas like if you think about earthquakes in California, I mean, how often does a terrible earthquake happen? Like not that often, really. Doesn't mean you shouldn't yeah. be prepared, but I think people just don't get into the routine of this is something that is a a threat that could happen at any time. So, you know, maybe I need to at least have a plan to like 
have some water or run down to the basement or, you know, whatever the plan might be for that particular natural disaster. Oh my gosh. This is just brilliant. We're taking such an interesting turn. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming on. Honestly, now my yeah, absolutely. head, I have to admit, I've been watching Young Sheldon and they have loads of tornadoes. I did not realise there's so many tornadoes in Texas. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, there's a few. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, it, happens, it happens quite a bit. You can tell my only real experience of America is via Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> one day I'll get over there one day but thank yeah, you so hopefully much not during tornado season no. <laughs> yeah anyway. yeah I know to check now but no yeah. seriously you have just this amazing incredible way of explaining behavioral science and then I always feel so inspired about ideas as you've been talking I've been thinking about uh, projects we're working on so <laughs> I'm hoping everyone listening also is feeling very inspired thank you so so much honestly you're just so superb at this before you go could you please uh, we ask everyone this recommend one book for the listeners and we have been saying one book that changed your life but we're relaxing a bit on that now because <laughs> that's not a lot <laughs> oh okay I, I will say the book that I've just picked up that I found really interesting is a book called Unreasonable Hospitality Ooh. about customer experiences in the restaurant industry and I'm not gonna lie I found out about this book because of The Bear which is a show on FX about these people running a restaurant oh. and they picked up the book and it's it's about it's all about like how they do customer service at these crazy like Michelin starred restaurants and things and there was a, a I don't want to give spoilers to the the show but there was a story that the guy who wrote the book I'm gonna remember his name I've written it down hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly Will Giadara I believe this is how you say his last name where they were talking about it they sort of translated a version of this into the show where, you know, in the show, they overheard someone at a table who was there in Chicago and they're going to they've been sightseeing in Chicago. They're in this restaurant and they're all like, oh, I can't believe I didn't get to get any Chicago deep dish pizza. Like I did this whole trip. That's the only thing I wanted to try, but I got to get on the plane tomorrow. And the waiter kind of overhears them and he goes to the staff and he's like, hey, let's send somebody down the street. And they go find them and plate up. Chicago deep dish style pizza just because they had overheard them. And I think the actual story that that's based on was like a hot dog in New York or something. But it's just interesting to think about, you know, what is kind of white glove customer experience? What is white glove? What does that mean to be like really surprising and delighting a customer? So I think we talk about that a lot in marketing, like what's something interesting and cool we could do. But it's it's very rare that you hear a story where you're like, wow, that's amazing. You know, yeah. like that's really something above and beyond. I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about they had like a CEO, I believe, of a hotel chain who was doing some training with a consultant to try to get their hotel staff to give white glove service. And he said, the sad thing is to this consultant is that almost nobody has who's working here has experienced white glove service. They don't know what to expect because they've never flown first class. They don't know that you get a hot towel. They don't know that, you know, people come up and give you champagne before the plane takes off. To be fair, I don't know that either because I'm not flying first yeah. class that often. But I thought that it was, a, it was a great point is, you know, how can we expect, you know, staff and, and, and things like that to be giving good customer service if in a lot of cases they've never experienced that level of customer service? And so this book, I think, was a, a good kind of, you know, way to, for me to think about, you know, what is superior customer experience yeah. or customer service. And I think the, the lessons are very translatable for any industry, really. 
I think sometimes it's better to read about other industries. It allows your brain mm. to um, take on the ideas and to get a bit creative. You're not like in that polarized position where you're thinking, right, must do this or how, mm. you know, you don't take it too seriously. Yeah. No, I think that's a wonderful idea. I keep thinking while you were talking, I kept thinking of Gordon Ramsay, you know, cause he does those restaurant shows but basically yeah. yells at everyone. So I'm not sure if that is quite <laughs> what glove customer service. Oh, yeah. so I'm going to check out the book and the bear. I'm intrigued yes, now definitely. by the bear. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. Yeah, awesome. I, it was a pleasure as always. Had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no, my pleasure. And everyone, please do go over to choicehacking.com and check out Jen's podcast. It's brilliant. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. We're so delighted you joined us. And if you've got any value out of this at all, or even if you just simply had a little chuckle, please do share it with anyone you think it may benefit. <laughs>